Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Our guest today is Amy Astley, Editor-in-Chief of the Iconic Architectural Digest. Now, our goal with Making Media was to learn from the best across all corners of media. That's new media, that's old media, non-traditional corners of the market. And Dom and I both put Architectural Digest on that list of brands that we were very interested in learning about from day one. It's rare that you could find a brand like AD that has a 100-year-old history and effectively balances that rich heritage while still being the pulse of the market. And we get into a lot of that with Amy. They are very much driving design forward while still balancing that cultural cachet that they've had for a very long period of time. And while we were impressed with Amy prior to this conversation, we had done a lot of research. Her answers in this conversation showed how much of a grasp that she has on this business when it comes to the creative side, the business side, and how those two things can mesh together. In one of my favorite answers that we've heard on this show, she talks about the cultural currency that exists with AD the magazine and what that represents to the people that show up in that magazine and how that opens up a range of possibilities outside of it. We also go into how the business model has shifted since Amy stepped in. The idea of being multimedia and keeping that brand identity when you do show up on other platforms and what it means to expand internationally, as well as into more markets like B2B. The last thing I'll note is that when we were researching for this episode, we listened to some of Amy's other conversations. And a comment that I made to Dom was, she really does give credit to a lot of the people around her. And in one particular conversation, it happened to be a lot of the people that she had learned from over the years that were mentors, perhaps senior to her. But in this conversation, she does something similar, but it's the people around her and under her a lot of the younger people that she's learned from. And she gives a lot of credit to these people. And there's a lot of relationships that she's had for a very long period of time. And I think there's a hidden lesson in there. So please enjoy this conversation with Amy Astley of Architectural Digest. All right, Amy, we are excited to have you here. And we were kicking around where to start off. You've worked with these iconic brands. And one of the things that we were interested in is what you were able to take from running an iconic fashion brand like Teen Vogue, which it was at the time, and how much of that was applicable to what you're doing running a design brand like Architectural Digest today? Thank you, Matt and Dom, for having me today. I'm really happy to be with you. I founded Teen Vogue and it was launched. The first issue was in 2003. And then I ran it for 13 years. And sometimes I call it editor in chief boot camp. 
where I would learn how to run teams of people, get the best out of people, be a leader, express your vision concisely, keep everybody moving in the same direction, and frankly, build a digital brand out of what started as a magazine. So I brought all of those skills to AD and I call AD a sleeping beauty. When I started here in 2016, it was purely a print product. It had a very limited digital footprint. There were no videos on YouTube. The social media footprint was tiny. The website traffic was very small. There was no e-commerce. AD is over hundred years old. It's a legacy brand. It's also an iconic brand. So it was really that tightrope of maintaining the prestige of the legacy brand and everything that it stands for, but making them fresh and modern which was more of an issue at AD than at Teen Vogue, and then layering in the digital product too. I think it sets up the broader conversation really well in terms of how media has evolved over that time too. Before we jump into that, I am curious, with something like fashion, it does not pretend to be timeless. It's very much of the moment. Is there such thing as timeless design? It's always something that we talk about internally as wanting to have timeless content, timeless design, things that you can set and forget and they will age nicely. But we're not quite sure if we're just pretending that that's a reality. Uh, And I think you're the authority to maybe opine on something like that. So I'm curious your thoughts there. Well, your question is a very good one. And we could have a whole podcast around just this issue of timelessness versus trendiness. The fashion industry moves very fast. It's notorious for burning out creative people. That's a topic of endless think pieces in the fashion press. And that is the business model, is getting people to buy more product. Whether it's expensive, high-end product, or it's fast fashion, which is by its very name, it's cheap, it's quick, it's disposable, it's not good for the earth. That is the business model is that you don't keep wearing the same things and that things become obsolete season after season. I think it's quite relentless for the business, for the creators, for the consumers, and for the earth. Then on the other hand, you have fashion that is timeless and classic, but it can look dated and stodgy too. But fashion basically is about speed, movement, newness. And design, of course, it's new, but I feel it moves in 10-year blocks. And we all know design, both architecture and interior design, it can look dated years later. There's nothing like walking into a vintage 60s or 70s kitchen with the avocado green. It can be great, by the way. It can be great, but it can also look really dated. So it's hard to say that design lasts forever, but we have buildings all over the world that have been there for hundreds and even thousands of years, right? And you can't really say that about many garments. So there's something so satisfying about, in particular, architecture that can last. And there are many, many examples of architecture that last from any decade and from any part of the world. I love interior design and architecture for that slowness. They're slower. They're meant to last longer. People cannot change out their kitchen every season. A few celebrities can. Basically, it is about a slower burn, something longer lasting. And I feel that the main trends go in 10-year chunks. If you think about the Nancy Myers time when it was about that white kitchen, Hampton's white kitchen, which is, by the way, still totally viable. People still have white kitchens. It's not the most trendy thing. It's not the most current looking thing. It's not. But if it was well done, it's not necessarily dated now. And it's easy to freshen it up too. It's easy to freshen things up. I got a little long-winded there for you, but 
design and architecture and landscape, they're inherently slower. They're more expensive. It's slow to build a building. It's slow to do a renovation. When you buy new windows, you want them to last and they should. Upholstery should last. And it's really bad for the earth for people to constantly be recycling through this stuff at an accelerated pace. And it's too expensive and it's too slow. So it's a slow burn. And I think there's a thoughtfulness to it because of that. It's fascinating. It makes me wonder, you know, those decade blocks that you're talking about, particularly in the design industry, whether you see AD's role as highlighting the new trend or ushering it in. Yes. And yes, <laughs> I think that we want to move our audiences forward a little bit. We feel that we're at the leading edge of design on the spine of the magazine. It says the International Design Authority. And by the way, I'm the global editorial director. So I work with all the markets that have AD and other parts of the world. We show a range of design. I show best in class design. So it's not like a magazine, which this exists in our market where it's only traditional homes or pretty homes, or it's only mid-century modern. We don't do that. We'll show a glass house, a glass box, something super minimalist, something brutalist, concrete, no furniture inside. And then we'll show a super pretty home covered in chins. Just each project is best in class. So I love the wide range. I think it makes AD entertaining and surprising. You don't know, oh, it's only going to be mid-century houses with mid-century stuff inside. You don't know whose house we're going to show. You don't know who the celebrities will be. And there's a wide range of styles, which I think makes it fun. And it's all valid as long as it's best in class. But I do think we need to lead the audiences forward. I do think we need to be pushing the edge. I guess I'll say the cutting edge. We need to be leading design forward. There's no doubt. We can't be followers. We have to be leaders. We have to be challenging the audiences, whether they're looking digitally, print, video, with new ideas, new ways of living. People who have different points of view on living. I don't want it to be a closed off little ecosystem. I want it very open. The globalization has been great for that. And yes, I think we need to drive audiences forward. Yeah, something for everyone. One last philosophical question before we get into the business more specifically. I often, and particularly within the media business, this is relevant, I think, the juxtaposition of creativity and business, they often seem naturally at odds with each other. One is predicated on systems and processes. The other one is more blank sheet of paper. You led the field in these categories. How do you think about those with respect to the teams that you lead? It's a great question. For me, they go hand in hand and not even remotely business averse. I love business. I love the business section of the newspaper. And I consider myself a business person in a creative field. I haven't seen that many editor-in-chiefs succeed who are averse to business or think it's not my problem. I understand my PL deeply and I am really motivated and excited by new business opportunities. And we're always seizing new opportunities here. We're going into e-commerce. We've launched the AD Pro directory, which is an amazing product that we can talk about more. And it has a distinct revenue side to it. And of course, I've always been involved with our advertising. Condé Nast does advertising extremely well. So I think business and creative go together. It's pretty hard to have a creative business if you don't have revenue attached to it. I've always thrown myself wholeheartedly into it. I find business fascinating. I think it's a secret of my own longevity and success in the industry. And I think the best business models out there, you usually find either one person at the center who can do both or a team of people, maybe two people. You think of Yves Saint Laurent with Pierre Berger. He was the creative genius and the other one was the business person. But in today's dynamic in the media business, I think it's great to find one person who can do both. And obviously, I've had a, a great mentor in Anna Wintour. I started working with her when I was very young. You see that business and creative together. 
So for me, it's always been natural, like breathing. I want my businesses to succeed. And I will also say that if you create great content, the audiences will come to it. That's all. And if you have an audience, you can have business because you are attracting masses of eyeballs and people who like what you're doing. I'm sure that we can all point to some exceptions, but in general, if the content's great, you'll bring in a lot of people who want to be involved in what you've created. That's definitely been true here at AD. And then you can monetize those audiences. And we're always doing that. We're like, oh, it was during COVID that we got into e-commerce. I mean, that's not that long ago, 2020. Now we have a really robust e-commerce business. Why? Because we have a point of view, because people understand what Architectural Digest is. If they come to us via SEO, they're searching for great mattresses and AD comes up hot. We have a very robust e-commerce business because of that. We've invested in the content. And then the user, who's a lot of the e-commerce comes through SEO, to be perfectly honest, they're like, I trust AD. Let's see what mattress or air purifier or coffee maker or bed linens. I'm saying things we sell a lot of that AD suggests. But it's because of the investment in the content and it's so good and so well done that you can build that e-commerce business. So always, I think of it like a central court to AD, which is what you think of. It's really basically the magazine about houses. And then all the spokes going off from the center are all the other businesses we can build because we have great content and great audience trust. And then you can build the businesses. So that's what we've done. And you've talked a lot about expanding the brand beyond the print magazine. How important is that print magazine to the overall identity of the brand and being the anchor medium, I guess, versus just simply being a multimedia brand? And for what it's worth, I still consider AD to be the magazine. And I watch some of the YouTube videos and everything, but I still think of it primarily as the magazine. Is that how you think about it internally? And how important is that to the identity of the overall brand? First of all, you asked the best questions and I appreciate what you just said. It's nice talking to someone who understands AD. I think the magazine is critical and it's for everything you answered it. So many people think of the magazine. They grew up with it. They still read it. Maybe they don't read it. There are a lot of young people out there who experience AD via Instagram, TikTok, which has been a big success for us, and YouTube. Of course, the YouTube videos, which now exist on TikTok as cutdowns. And that's their experience. And maybe they never look at the magazine. I cannot tell you how many very young people are like, I didn't know it was a magazine. It's all good. They're coming to our content on whatever platform that they prefer. And we want to be there where they are. But the magazine, I think, is critical. First of all, it's still a highly viable piece of the business. It's lucrative. It's got a lot of healthy advertising attached to it and also subscriber revenue. It's expensive. So you wouldn't mess with that. Just that alone is gold. And then on top of that, it's, I think, the most beautiful way to experience a house. Although some videos, a really good video can come extremely. It can be another aspect of that. But to me, the best way to experience a house is less like, oh, on Instagram. You can see it on Instagram. You can see it on TikTok. But a really great video and a really great magazine layout, we really labor over those photos of the layouts of the flow in the magazine. I think it's a very relaxing experience. People tell me that all the time. They love getting their magazine. They tell me how they sit in this one chair with my tea. Or so many people tell me, I read it in the bathtub. I'm like, okay, that's fine. I don't need any visual on this, but it's an experience. People don't say, oh, I took my phone and then I did this with my phone. Nobody says that. They say, I took my magazine here or I read it there. They'll conjure up the setting that they experienced it in. So I understand that it's a transporting experience, which is a beautiful thing. 
also, and this is really important, the prestige, the access that you think of with AD, when you think of those amazing celebrity videos, those celebrities are doing a YouTube video because they're on the cover of AD. They want to be on the cover of AD. It's extremely prestigious. There aren't that many magazines left and there aren't that many prestigious ones left. We had David Harbour and Lily Allen on the cover recently. We've done so many people. Um, Dakota Johnson goes on and on. Kendall Jenner was a great cover for us. Lots of great covers. And those people, they want to be in print. So it's still a real way that you have access to these incredible personalities and these incredible houses. And even separate from the celebrity piece of it, the most amazing houses by the most incredible architects and designers. My December issue is dropping Wednesday, which is tomorrow. And it's an incredible cover, nothing to do with celebrities, although it does involve a celebrity architect. So people want those projects to be seen in print. It's lasting. Everything digital is ephemeral. It's all ephemeral. That's why the magazine just, it holds so much weight. It's an actual product. People keep it. They don't recycle it. They don't chuck it out. You keep your ADs. It goes back to the beginning of our conversation. Fashion feels dated just in a few cycles, but the interiors last and people keep looking back and back at their archive of magazines or the digital archive, which we also have online for a price. The magazine is 100% here to stay. And I think it's going to be with us for a very long time. I wish I could say forever, but I think in my tenure, because it's a really good business. That was a really great answer. I'm sorry. It was so long-winded. The access, the authority, the fact that people, like I said, celebrities want that cover. They want their house to be seen on the cover or to be in the magazine. It's a stamp of approval from a prestigious authority. But like I said, it's not just celebrities. It's also major architects and interior designers. They want that. It just lasts. It's not going away. And it's an archive. It's a record of the work. And we also start our conversation talking about how slow and expensive it is to build a house or renovate a house or just fix up your bathroom. It's all painstaking. It's all expensive. And so to have it immortalized in the magazine is, I think, extremely meaningful for all kinds of people, famous or not. It's incredible. We often think about these forms of currency that are not obvious to the outside. And something like that, what you mentioned in terms of the YouTube video is made because they want to be in the print magazine. And it does have a totally different feel. I think even... The magazine itself can act as a form of decor for many people, just having it in their homes, on their shelves. So I think it goes way beyond what the word or term magazine might actually mean. And I think you articulated that power quite well. You said it well in your question. The magazine's central. It's really central. I set you up, perhaps, but you certainly brought it home. When you think about extending the brand then to other platforms like YouTube or like a TikTok, which goes even more extreme. By definition, those platforms have their own styles that you need to constrain yourself into. And I think with YouTube, I was just telling Dom before this, I've watched some of the videos oftentimes of people sitting behind a desk describing what they're looking at. And it's very thoughtfully, tastefully done. It does not feel like it's just trying to please an algorithm. How do you think about playing the game without playing the game of these other platforms and keeping your brand identity while also still having some type of success on those platforms? Yeah. The algorithms are like a bet noir. It's not fun to deal with algorithm changes or try to guess what a computer is going to do. I'm working more towards our own audiences, our O&O platform and the audiences that are ours, that are here for us. So I think you'll see 
more attention paid in that way. But we're lucky at AD. We do everything in an authentic way. And I think it resonates on every platform. And we take those YouTube videos, which can be obviously so much longer, and we cut them up and edit them for TikTok to great success. I call that ringing out the content where it's in print, it's on social, it's on YouTube, it's on TikTok. We put our content in as many places as we can. And I'm definitely not precious about how it would be edited or changed for different audiences or different platforms. It's fine. On YouTube, actually, the growth is in shorts right now. So that's where the audience is going. And I feel while we're leaders, we're always leaders. You also have to look at audience behavior. We're always going to be leading, but you don't want to be forcing people to do things the way you've always done it. You've got to see where are they going? They're going towards TikTok. They're going towards short form. And we can create that content for them. And we'll still always have our long form videos. But I don't think I really answered your question. How do we stay? How do we keep integrity? We just, from the very beginning, don't create content that feels off brand, whether it's long or short, or people look at it on what's on Pinterest, or it's on LinkedIn, or it's on Instagram, YouTube. We try to come at everything with the AD brand values, which is design first. When you came from Team Vogue to AD and you talked about awakening a sleeping giant, and you've talked about this point of view, and obviously AD has a really long history before you, but there was clearly some things that you saw that needed to happen. Did you tweak the point of view at all? Or was it, this is the point of view, but we do need to bring it to these 21st century mediums? Another good question. I think I tweaked it a lot, but I kept the core, which is an obsession with architecture and interior design and landscape, kept that core of that obsession. The team here is unbelievable. I have an amazing team. And that's why AD is great for the audience and is a great business. Amazing team. So everybody here is, we're just obsessed with the topic that we're covering. So that hasn't changed. And I think that's been in the DNA. It's over a hundred years old. So when I arrived, I had that core, but it was too much sameness. The houses all looked the same. They didn't all look the same, but there was a sameness to what was being done, a flattening of the taste. And I wanted to make it buzzy. I wanted it to be culturally relevant. I wanted people to talk about, remember what they saw in AD and to talk about it and share it, which is huge because it used to be went towards older people and it was stately. It was elegant. It was very tasteful. There's nothing wrong with it. But when I arrived in 2016, that's not what I wanted to do with it. And I don't think that would have been a great long-term plan either, to be perfectly honest with you. You have to update, you have to adapt to new audiences. It's a much more diverse product in every single way. And I've tried to bring that into everything we do, the houses we publish, the videos we make, the celebrities we feature, our AD100 list, which is an incredible yearly list in January that people in the industry desperately want to be on. It was the same people year after year. It didn't change. They're great people. They're super talented and some of them are still on it, but I was just like, we have to shake this up. This has to be reflecting our culture. It has to be bringing in new people, allowing new people in. So I would say I tweaked it like crazy and not everybody liked it and that's okay. I have to live with the fact that you can't make everybody happy. And I'm proud of what we've built. It's culturally relevant. It's buzzy. People will talk about it and share it. Our most viewed video ever on YouTube is Wiz Khalifa. And he walks through and he shows you his rooms. This is where I have smoked my weed. And he's funny. He's a great personality. And you remember it. And you share it with your friends. You're like, oh my God, you got to see this place. Or Dakota Johnson was hilarious with the bamboo forest and her neighbors hated it. She said, F the neighbors or something funny. 
was hilarious. She was unfiltered. People, when they're in their home, they're looser. They're in their own home. And they'll start telling you something funny or something poignant and emotional, whatever it may be about their space. And I wanted all that to come through. So it didn't feel like a stately catalog of grand houses for people richer than thou. It had to become more of a living document, interesting people at home, living a life in their environment. And so now people talk about it. When we did David Harbour and Lily Allen in the March cover, it created an internet sensation. The house was so feminine and beautiful. And they have the carpeted bathroom. It was very English. And David ended up, the open door is hilarious. It's very funny. And he ended up doing late night talk shows, including Seth Meyers. You can Google it. It's very funny where Seth holds up the AD and says to him, hey, what about this carpeted bathroom? Do you really love this? And they have a hilarious exchange, which I'm not going to be funny retelling it. But that to me is the whole cycle. That is the most ideal and desirable cycle of AD content. It exists in the magazine. It's a cover story. It exists as a successful open door video. Then it's obviously lands on TikTok and all and Instagram and all the other social platforms. And then to see it come full circle into the late night show where that is the water cooler moment where people are talking about David and Lily. They were super buzzy then. They're a very interesting couple and people having a funny dialogue about their home. Who talked about interior design or bathrooms before? So I think AD has been incredibly successful in harnessing exciting people, lively people who are at interesting moments in their career and their life and bringing through that personality. It's the person in the house that makes it all interesting. So it's not just this tasteful document of elegant sofas because people don't talk about elegant sofas. We have elegant sofas. We have incredible interior design. We have it. It's there. So for people who just want that, we got that. But I just wanted AD to feel like not dusty and something people talk about. The beauty of that story as well is that you could never have scripted what would have come out of it. Obviously, you can find interesting people and go to their homes and just see what unfolds. And then naturally, you're opportunistic in what comes off the back of it. Exactly. You can't script it. You don't know what's going to happen. Alicia Keys and Swizz, when we did their open door video, she went and played the piano. She went over, she played the piano. We can't ask them to do that. John Legend did that too in his video. John Batiste just did it. We just did John Batiste at home with his wife, Sulika. It was a beautiful story in their Brooklyn townhouse. And Sulika wrote it herself. She's a writer. She's a two-time cancer survivor. It was an incredibly moving story. Their townhouse is aspirational. Anybody would want that Brooklyn house. And they're both so talented. They're very in love. They're young. She's beat cancer twice, bad cancer. She wrote the story in her own words. And that to me is just to see. And the story was like wildly popular because people were interested in them, their story, their perseverance, their talented people who built their own life. It's very uplifting for audiences of people. Yeah, totally. And houses are just kind of conduits for personalities as well. Switching gears a little bit to the B2B channel that you've developed, you talked a bit about the directory at the very beginning of the conversation. I'm really interested in how you've developed this quite different muscle. You've often been business to consumer, if you like, to use a business term. But what's been building out this different channel been like for you and the business? AD Pro was something I wanted to do early days and we launched it in, I think it's 2017 or 2018. AD Pro, it's a daily newsletter. It's paywalled. It's attached to revenue, not through advertising, but through people paying for a subscription. And it really is speaking to people in the industry, to business, to professionals. They might be designers, they might be PR people, they might run a showroom, whatever. And that's been very successful. They also get access to our archive that I referred to earlier. So there are events, we're always layering in 
Zoom events, IRL events, more and more things for that community. And I think that community is really important. And then I wanted to add directory. It was something I wanted to do from the moment I got here pretty much because in the end, the designers, the architects, they want to be attached to clients and they are through their editorial, but we're not doing editorial on everybody every day. It's not possible. I also saw a business avoid an opportunity, if you will, because people were asking me daily and they were also asking people on my staff for recommendations for decorators, for designers, for architects, landscape. It happens to me every week, but it used to happen to me all day, every day. And it was great. And I like the matchmaking and I have attached a lot of clients and talent to each other, but there had to be a better way that could scale. And that's the directory. So the directory went live in January. The designers are vetted, they apply, they do pay a fee to us. So there's revenue attached, which is positive. And it's building a priority relationship community. In my mind, I hosted an event for them last night at an AD 100s a man's new space here in New York. And he had a new furniture line to share with them. And it was packed. They want to socialize. They want to network with each other. They want to network with me and the other editors at AD. And it's just another layer of talent for us to access to help them build their careers. And last night was a really fun night for me because multiple directory members came up to me and told me about new clients they had through the directory. And all of this goes back to SEO too. Say your mom lives in Austin, Texas. Instead of you calling me up and say, oh, can you give me designers? And, oh, okay. I'll research it and send it to you. I said, go to the directory. We have the best designers in Austin, Texas. That person in Austin can just, or they're just online searching and AD comes up high, it ranks high in the search, right? Because of all the investment we've put into our product. So the SEO is good, just like our e-commerce. It's, it all pays back the amount of effort and money investment that the company's put into AD. So the directory is doing really well. It's doing what it's supposed to do, which is linking talent to clients, but it's also building a community and bringing them more to the awareness of me and my team. Because we'll tend to work always with that cutting edge line of designers. This goes back to earlier in our conversation, but there's so many other working designers out there in the US. This is a domestic product right now who are doing great work. And this is their path towards showing more of their work in AD in all our platforms. It might be print, it might be on the website. We put our talent onto our videos, which you've seen on YouTube. We bring the talent there. And it's just another way for us to support their careers. But happily, it's also monetized for us, which is critical. And I think it's just the beginning of where we can go in these relationships. I do have other things planned that it might be a little premature to talk about, but I can see that it has legs. Like all the best inventions, you can just spin it out in so many ways. You could go beyond, right now it's interior designers, landscape and architects, but you could add other layers. How many people come to me looking for a contractor? You can see that you could grow it. How hands-on are you, obviously with the vetting, in order to get into the directory, there's a process there. But once they're there with the matchmaking, I can make the case that being very hands-on would be good. I can also make the case that being very hands-on can get you involved in things that you probably don't want to have to deal with. Your questions are so good. That's where we're hands-off. We vet them. And vetting means a lot of things. It's checking the experience. We also even check the quality of their website and their photography. If it's not where it needs to be, we'll say you have to invest more in your photography and help them to present themselves better so that they can end up being on the list if that's on the directory, if that's their goal. But once we've vetted them, it's up to them and the clients to speak. Many people say to me, oh, I had all these phone calls and I'm having meetings. Maybe they got the job. Maybe they didn't. That's where we're done. But we continue to be involved with them 
that piece of the matchmaking will be done, but will continue to be involved in telling their story, which is bringing their work to light on our editorial platforms. And that's a comment I get from a lot of the members too, saying, oh, I got two clients because I was on your Instagram. People shop AD's Instagram looking for talent. I certainly believe that. And another form of brand extension is going abroad into international markets. How do you deal with the different aesthetic that you're going to deal with in different markets, but maintaining some sense of whether it's quality or brand identity? How does that relationship work in a centralized or decentralized way? I spend a lot of time with the global markets. I started my day today. There was a Zoom at 7.15 a.m. to try to get all the different time zones on there. Although for Mexico, it was 6.15 a.m. Not so great. That was an unusual one. I personally would never do that to anybody. But the thing about globalizing with AD is it's been a complete joy because the quality of the projects that we all see is very high. And the heads of editorial content in all the markets are the best. They're the best in their field. They're the best in their market. They're super connected. And I don't have to police the quality of the projects. They're excellent. All these people have amazing taste. And then we content share. And that's a really nice and new thing too, because that's not how Conde Nast used to work until a few years ago, we were all in competition. And to be honest, ADUS would often get these really important houses because it's such a big daddy and has such a global reach because of our digital prowess. And now instead of us just hogging it up, the other ADs can have it too. We just had in our November issue, a young designer named Hugo Toro. He's a huge talent based in Paris. Our Paris office took the lead on that French AD, producing it, producing our head of content there wrote the copy, took the lead on the photo shoot. And then really all the ADs used it because he's a huge talent and his house is everything that I described wanting earlier, new, fresh, driving design forward, a fresh young talent, very exciting person. We all content shared it. So I find working with the global editions, it's inspiring. I love it. I've learned so much more about India and Mexico too. I love Mexico. The projects from Mexico are incredible. Ditto India. I didn't really have access. I saw some projects in Mexico and very few in India before we globalized. And I'm always learning from everybody. They're incredibly impressive. I really can't say enough good things. And there's no aspect of me having to preserve and protect AD because it's not that relationship. These people are best in class. The perfect place to be in. You touched on something which I was sort of wondering about ahead of time in terms of Condé Nast and how interconnected the different brands are. Obviously, it's one of the headquarters for the world's best magazine brands and media brands in general. And how much idea sharing or project sharing is there outside of AD with Vogue and various other publications? I share with the ADs and that's enough. It's not overwhelming, but there are quite a few ADs. I don't content share with Vogue. They ask me my advice sometimes, but AD has been so successful. It's this formula that I've already described of interesting people in their own environments. It's fascinating. People love it. Why are people watching Open Door? Why are 15 and 18 year olds watching Open Door? They're discovering they love design. They want to see Kendall Jenner or Wiz Khalifa in their own home. So our success in that formula has definitely bred a lot of people out there in every other remaining luxury product saying, let's get in on this action and get more people in their homes. It's happening. Am I right in saying that you were the first person at Condé to hire a digital marketing person? I hired the first social media editor. Yeah, that was at Vogue. And that was back when we were at Four Times Square. So you are right there. But listen, I worked at Vogue. I'm friends with everybody at Vogue. I respect them. And there's a little friendly competition. 
AD, we have incredible prowess with getting the projects that we want. And I think that sometimes that other people in the industry are like, oh my God, AD got it again. But we're all very friendly. We sit on the same floor here at the World Trade Center. Many of my colleagues are here, Vanity Fair, GQ, Vogue. It's a great creative atmosphere with, again, people who are best in class, sitting in the same room with David Remnick from The New Yorker regularly as I do. It keeps you on your game. It keeps you on your toes. You're just with the best and the brightest. You mentioned working with Anna before, and I'm sure you've gotten this token question a million times about what you learned working with her. But are there things that stand out? We just did a deep dive analysis of things that have been written about her and all of the things that she's brought in such a unique way and the brand that she's created, not only around Vogue, but around herself. What were lessons that you took from working with her? Well, Anna's very decisive. She's very organized. She's very efficient. She answers emails immediately. All that administrative stuff, anybody who knows her knows this. Meetings start on time. Meetings end on time. She's a little bit early. She's never late. I think these are really good characteristics for a leader. People know what to expect. And there's a respect for other people's time and that kind of thing. But the ultimate thing about Anna to me, I've already addressed, is that she's a business person running a creative brand. It's that blend of business and creative. And she's always, as long as I've known her, always been innovating, always innovating. This is the core of her superpower. She's always innovating. She's always dreaming up, let's do the Met Ball and make it the biggest red carpet in the world. And then does it. Let's do Vogue World. And the doses were seventh on sale, which was a huge fashion sale and it benefited AIDS. So much fundraising, so many incredible events that attach fashion to culture. And it's that innovation, that energy to keep pushing forward and trying new things and never to just take it easy. That is her superpower. I think that I have certain of those qualities, although I'm very different to Anna. And the best advice she ever gave me, and I give it to other people now, the best advice she ever gave me in all these years was make it more you, make it more you. And of course, I work in creative field. So that might not work if you're an accountant. Maybe you shouldn't make it more you. But <laughs> Since I'm working with creative people, photographers say to me, what do you want? And I'm like, you make it you. You're the one on set with John and Christy. You do it. And with writers, I'm like, no, you see what AD is. You get it. You get the parameters now. Make it more you. That's where the creativity can flourish. That's what brings the audiences. That's what brings the advertisers. It's that ecosystem of making incredible content. We've been talking about this through the whole podcast, but make it more you. It's just a few words. It's very simple. I now say it to my children. I'm like, make it more you. And I think it is beautiful advice. It's very generous advice. It shows trust and confidence in the other person. It certainly showed me that she felt that way about me. I use it with other people now. It puts a lot of responsibility on them and shows that you trust them. And where I would end with that, she's a woman of few words. She's a doer rather than a talker. And that was a great thing to witness too. And I try to bring that to AD. I'm like, let's just do it. Let's just do it and do it really well. And then do the next thing. So like a relentless amount of energy, but the people around me are all type A. I don't want to drag people forward, kicking and screaming. If it's not for them, they have to be here. They don't have to do it. I like people who have really high energy, self-starters. I don't micromanage them. Make it more you, your ideas, you execute on it. Of course, I'm going to look at everything. I have my hand in all of it. But my team, I said this to you earlier, the team's incredible. And I do not think that you can build a great business alone or by micromanaging or by not trusting other people and treating them well. And we are surrounded by examples of people destroying their businesses by doing those things. 
I won't name names, not here in this building, out in the outer world. We'll ask you offline. You have to build a team and trust the team. That's it. Throughout your career, you've seen a host of extraordinary people. Are there others that you would point to and say, I really think about either the advice this person gave me or what I saw that person do over my career that's kind of led you to this point? It's the young people I've worked with who have had a great impact on me. Teen Vogue was a hotbed of talent. I'm so proud of the people I hired. Emily Weiss, who went on to found Glossier. Eva Chen, who's now a huge influencer in her own right and a book author and works at Facebook and Instagram. Phil Picardi was a great talent. Elaine Welteroth. All these people were people I hired and trained and groomed, but I learned from them a million things. It would be like a whole other podcast, but they opened my mind in many ways and I'm a better editor and a better person for it. So I would say another thing I've learned with managing people is I'm talking a lot because we're doing a podcast. You're asking me questions in life. I'm like, just be quiet and let other people talk and try to let them speak, encourage them to speak, listen to them when they're speaking. I try to speak. I'm very verbal. So I'm like, try to speak less to talk a lot. We're in a podcast, but speak less, listen more. You get the best out of other people when you're listening to them, you're looking at them, you're letting them. And sometimes you start to realize we're not a good fit, but very rarely. The young people I worked with were incredibly inspiring. I still work with all of them. I did Elaine Waltross house in AD. I did Eva Chen's house in AD. I'm still waiting on Emily Weiss. I don't know why we're in her house. She loves houses, but I'm friends with her. They're all still in my life in different ways and they've been enhancing in my life. So it really is the young people who've driven me forward. Phil Picardi was amazing. The most incredible digital editor. He was amazing. I learned a lot from him. So I just opened my mind to them. Say a bit more about him in particular when you say he was the most amazing digital editor. What does that mean? At Team Vogue, he had worked for me in the beauty department and then he moved on. I can't remember where he went, to be honest. And then I was hiring a digital director. I wanted to really remake Teen Vogue's website. And I reached out to him and I asked him for a brief on what he would do with it. It was a long, but not overly long brief, five, seven pages, best brief I've ever received in my entire career. And I said, yes, do all of these things. And then he did them all. And it was controversial too. Sometimes we would butt heads over things because I was more conservative. He was very young and he had a different point of view about the audience. You can't really say right or wrong. But for me, it was a huge learning experience with him. And we're still friends. I'm working on a project with him right now. I've done his house in AD too. I don't know. The young people for me have been very impactful. You said you prefer listening, but I'm very glad you've been talking. We've learned a ton. And I want to get you out on this last question because I've seen you write and speak elsewhere about how you've had to get really comfortable with saying the two-letter word no over your career. One, can you explain why that is? And two, how have you gotten comfortable saying no? That's a great question to end on. I hate saying no. I'm such a people person, which is why I've enjoyed my career all these years. I love people. I love talking to people. I love the teams. I love the talent, photographers, designers. I'm friends with models. I'm friends with Carly Kloss, who I used to shoot. I'm a real people person. I hate saying no to people. However, it has to be done. I've tried to find nice ways and ways to redirect them. And at AD in particular, it was about building a digital platform so that instead of saying no, of course, there are houses that simply aren't right for AD and you just have to say no and move on. And you can't waste your energy on that. People have to be grownups and accept rejection, not that they all want to. But for me, I saw the positive in the negative right away when I got to AD. It's like, we need a big digital platform so we can show all these projects, which are fabulous. I can't show them all in the magazine. It's limited. We show like five houses per issue. 
And I was just turning down dozens of projects per week, dozens. It's soul crushing. And for my team too. So we set about making a website that was elevated because people didn't want their projects on websites. They only wanted them in the magazine. People were print centric, going old days, old think, the prestige of that. Guess what? We flipped the switch. Now they want to be on the website. They understand that millions of eyeballs are seeing it. They see that they're getting clients in business, that their careers are flourishing. Of course, landing in the print magazine is an ultimate. It's so prestigious, but people moved on. Some people are going to be in print, but most people aren't. And I don't feel badly anymore. I'm like, if it's a great project, we're going to find a home for it on digital. And that means it's on our website, it's on our social platforms, and we'll find other ways to work with people. So now that we've built this huge ecosystem for design, if someone's talented, we can find a place to support them. Everybody's a winner. Everybody's happy. For me, that is probably one of the ultimate things that we've done at AD is make it a place that many more people can flourish and be supported. I really don't like to say no unless it's necessary. Well, what a great place to close. Thank you so much for sharing your lessons from a truly extraordinary career. So thank you. Thank you. All right. I am hoping that we edit out my gushing of her answer about the value of the magazine and that identity as the overall piece of the brand because I was a little bit of a record scratch moment within the conversation. But it's so rare that I am listening to an answer. And I think to myself, man, that would be the perfect clip if we were to ever post on social media. It says everything you need to hear just in terms of the reason why people care and will allow them into their homes with the video camera on is because they want to be in that magazine. And I was just listening. I was like, yep, 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 yep. So Needless to say, if you're a listener, I hope that was edited out. If not, forgive me for being a little bit overly gushing to a guest and not staying completely impartial throughout the conversation. Well, now that you've said it, we have to leave it in. And I was never going to cut it out anyway. So when you started talking, I was thinking, wow, this is unusual. So there's clearly, for our regular listeners, they can understand how impactful the answer was to you. I do agree with you that it made me think by the end of it, as magazines become less and less relevant, which I think everyone would agree with, the few that are relevant will only become more relevant. And almost as you kind of mentioned the currency point, their currency will skyrocket because of exactly the reason that she said. And it's funny, this vintage fashion, if you like, becoming a bit more trendy. These magazines almost start to feel a bit vintage. And if you're on the cover of it, you can put it in your bookshelf or you can frame the cover and you can put it on the wall and it feels like something versus a web page, which will go in an archive somewhere, but never looks the same when you pull it out of the Wayback Machine or whatever it's called. Let me ask you this. If you had the opportunity to be featured in a high-profile magazine or be featured on a high-profile YouTube channel or on some type of website, I might even extend that. Something on live television. Which would you pick? Gosh, that's a good question. I think television would probably be the first choice. I think I would pick the magazine. I think it's close. The magazine would definitely be number two, if not number one on the list for me. Just thinking about the ability for somebody to be picking that up and seeing it at any point in time. Live television comes and goes. So if people don't catch you at that moment... Well, I would tape it and show everyone. Which is a much different exercise than having that magazine out there, which feels very different. I don't know. It just raised this awareness for me just in terms of the currency that really exists with it that I think is more powerful than other mediums in a really surprising way. Is it simply because it's physical and you can pick it up? 
and it won't decompose unless you leave it out in the woods. Well, that's for a word that I hate to use, unpack that. Are there other forms of physical that would compare? I don't think there are. I mean, it would be a newspaper or a book, I guess. But the magazine feels different than those in a pretty material way. Yeah, a magazine or a coffee table book that's full of pictures, I think would be the other one that would be interesting. Although whenever I get a nice magazine, I think I'm going to put this on the coffee table. It always just gathers dust and I never open it. So maybe I'd be making a decision based on my desire rather than what I actually want. Yeah, it's an interesting thought exercise, though, because it does open your mind up to a totally different piece of the market that you don't really think about. And yeah, I mean, we've had conversations internally about magazine acquisitions, and we've looked at certain things like that. And I've had other people tell me that exact thing related to those specific magazines, journals, you might call them. Yeah, it's just an interesting thought exercise. But you would never start one now. And I think you referenced someone at Hodinki or read something that they wrote when they revamped their magazine. And I think the words were, this makes no economic sense for us, but we're doing it anyway. And I think that's the way you'd have to look at it. Yes. If you did not have a legacy brand. Another one of our guests was talking about that with Ben Thompson of Stratechery. There are so many legacy things that you would never spend the money to create the infrastructure today. But that infrastructure is what makes them exist. So 24 hours of live programming is one of those things. It's what actually differentiates it. You would never spend that money again today. But it's interesting to think about those things, not to go on too much of a tangent from the conversation itself. But a good conversation is one that opens your mind up to all these different things. Do you want to name my favorite part of that conversation? Anna Wintour. No, that was a very good one. This is more tongue in cheek. When you were explaining why the magazine was the epicenter and how that's still your favorite piece of it. And Amy kindly said that she agreed with you for all the reasons, but our younger listeners prefer video, which really enjoyed that time capsule of aging you. I can't be put into one demographic, whether that's age or anything else. I will have my own opinion on things regardless. Anna Wintour and just that bit of Be More You, I think is so fascinating. It lined up exactly with what Senra said. David Senra on his Founders podcast this week talked about Anna Wintour, and it pretty much lined up with exactly the commentary that he had about her, which I thought was perfect. When somebody is as advertised and you get somebody who has worked directly with them, I think that is like super important. Not somebody who's been tangentially involved with them or spent some time with them. Somebody who has worked directly with them to have that type of commentary is noteworthy. Totally. The quote I clipped from David's episode was that Anna gives you two minutes. The first minute you have to tell everything that you want. And the second minute, out of courtesy, she gives you. And that's exactly what Amy said in terms of being punctual, always early, etc. And brevity is a core piece of her managerial style. The other part of Architectural Digest that I sort of pinged you about earlier in the day is this new directory that they've started. And I think there are interesting parallels to our business in that once you become, I'm not comparing us to AD, but once you have brand recognition in the space that you operate in, being able to curate things for people to come to in their world, you go to AD, you see these wonderful houses, then you think, oh, I want to do my house, but I need an architect. Who would I trust? There's opinion on this. AD, I would trust. In our industry, hopefully we can get to a point where people trust us to recommend, I don't know what the X, Y, or Z is or the type of person, but that would be a very cool thing to incorporate into what we do. Yes, absolutely. I think once your brand can be realized as a stamp of approval, which I think that happens with our podcasts, which is basically the first extension of the brand is you release a different podcast, you stamp Colossus on it, and there is some expectation that it meets a certain quality bar. And I think we've generally achieved that. Then you start extending into, okay, where else can my brand go and have meaning? 
And we are trying this with the hiring efforts, just understanding who's in our audience between the candidates and the labor pool of people and what they do, who they are, and then companies and being able to create those connections. You know, if you're looking at somebody who listens to a lot of Colossus podcasts, that they have certain characteristics. They're probably ambitious. They probably are constantly learning and trying to learn more no matter where they are in terms of their career. And that checks a lot of boxes to me. That's one form, but I do agree. Can it extend further? I think there's a balance to it, which is why I was asking her about how involved they truly are. You don't want to get yourself involved in things where you can't control other businesses and how they operate. And there's certain things you do have to be hands off at some point. But if you can create some sort of marketplace, which is controlling for people that you think highly of, there's a business opportunity there for sure. I couldn't agree more with what you said. And then the final piece that I wanted to bring up was just this concept of, she never said this word, but I'm going to use it, spikiness of giving the brand more edge and it not being so samey. I think so many big legacy media brands end up being very middle of the road, trying to cater to all people. And that is very clearly not the formula for success here. You do. And I think she's proven it really well with AD. You want to turn some people off because you're going to be able to generate more talking points if you do have a bit more spikiness and edge and feature people in homes that are slightly more off the beaten track. You do need to have the point of view and there needs to be a direction and a sharpness. I hate using all these words that have no direct meaning. But you know it when you see it, where there's an angle to this. And it's interesting because she was talking about they're not just one thing. They're not just old homes, Victorian homes. There are brands and properties that focus on just those things. They do try to be something for everyone in some sense, but not to the point where it's just a diluted, sterile, ineffective form of media. And that's probably... There's so much hype around niche right now. Rightfully so. I think there's a lot of opportunity to be super zeroed in on who you're covering, who you're writing for, who you're making media for, really narrowing the lens for a very specific demographic. What they're doing is interesting because it's definitely more mass market, but at the same time, it has enough of a point of view where it's, to me, it feels like it still has as much brand equity as it's ever had. Yeah, they're threading the needle well. I guess when she was talking about it, I kind of wanted her to explain how hard that is to do because it sounds very obvious in hindsight and obviously in this instance it has worked but so many people you hear starting in the media industry and they say well conventional wisdom is you need to stand for something very specific and then once people have got your trust then you can start to spread your wings a bit and go into other areas and so many people are like well yeah that's the conventional wisdom but i'm just going to follow my curiosity and i'm going to talk about everything in tech or everything in investing or everything in business and it's like mm, i think you have to earn the ability to do that to begin with and i think that translates a little bit into what she was talking about i bet when you go in and you say on day one, hey, this is what AD is going to look like and stand for. There were a bunch of people within the organization and outside it being like, why is this person on the cover of AD? Or that would never have happened in the last 30 years. I think it's really easy to underappreciate that stuff in hindsight when it's worked out, because I bet there were some really frustrating moments in that first year. And maybe the last question of saying no gets to that. She talked about it very politely, but I'm sure she was having to fend a lot for her view of making this slightly different than it has been. Yes. I think in terms of good traits that she has, her focus on the positives and the good things around her, the good people, highlighting those things, it is very clear. She alluded to not everybody was happy. But just in general, everyone, especially in the industries that we came from in the broader finance industry, there is a massive, massive wave of cynicism that hits rather than focusing on the good stuff. And you need to balance it. But it's worth highlighting that because it really stands out. And 
the research that we did prior and listening to her conversations, she definitely does that just consistently highlighting the good things. But I think your point is right. And it's just something I was thinking about before we were recording. They refer to themselves as the International Design Authority. That is such a powerful statement. At the same time, it feels completely appropriate. I don't question that at all. And I would question us doing it, which I think is appropriate to question just because of our history or lack thereof relative to that brand. But I think it's something like that. If you're going to make that statement, you're going to take yourself very seriously when it comes to these things. You're stamping your foot in the ground. And I think that then allows you to handle things like that. Yeah. In 97 years, we can start to call ourselves the International Investment Authority. Things move faster now. So I think we have to adjust for the rate of change in the world. 9.7 years. Yeah. 9.7 months. (laughs) It's just a super interesting brand. There's a lot to learn from it. I think just seeing what big media looks like is really fun too. And that was a fun conversation. There was a lot for us to learn from in that conversation and Amy's career more broadly. So I hope everyone enjoyed that. I certainly did. See you all next week. Indeed. Indeed.